Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one of the Ian's Tech Travels podcast. Uh, seeing as it's episode one, I should give you some background on what this is. So to cut to the chase, this podcast is an extension of sorts of my weekly tech travels column for CityWire. I'm going to look at some of the latest trends in technology and assess what they mean for financial advisors and wealth managers. Now, I've got a fantastic and debate-worthy topic to get us started, which is cryptocurrency. And I want to look at how professional investors like wealth managers and IFAs might approach it. So let's face it, everyone has an opinion on this, especially in the world of professional investing. Uh, those opinions appear to be shifting from sceptical to more open-minded, especially as we see greater interest from institutional investors. So on that, I would like to introduce James Butterfill, uh, investment strategist at CoinShares. James, thank you for joining us. Hi there. James works at CoinShares. And for those who don't know, uh, CoinShares is looking to be a pioneer in digital asset investing. Uh, it opened the first regulated Bitcoin hedge fund and the first exchange traded Bitcoin product, uh, among other things. So in short, CoinShares is looking to expand access to digital assets. It's quite a broad way of putting it, James, but I hope that's about right. No, that's a good summary, yes. <laughs> okay, nice one. We're off to a good start. So my first question for you, um, some of you in the industry might know James. Um, James made the career move to CoinShares in 2020. And, and looking at his CV, I mean, looking at your CV, James, you're a former head of equity strategy at HSBC Private Bank, a former director and fund manager at Coots. Uh, you held a senior role of ETF securities too. So what, what makes someone with your CV join CoinShares? Yeah, I mean, I made the career limiting decision to move to um, crypto asset fund. And they say once you've done that, you can never go back. Um, I don't know if that's true. I, I think there's certainly legitimization. But for me, I think about five, five years ago, when I was head of research at ETF Securities, I, I started to get questions from clients about Bitcoin. And actually, I didn't know that much about it at the time. And I thought, well, I'm a bit of a tech geek. So I thought, well, there's no better way uh, than to actually start Bitcoin mining myself. Yeah. So I built my own mining rig and started mining it. And that helped me learn about it. And I started fielding a lot more questions from clients. And I think as if anyone's listening that is not into Bitcoin, what you'll find in your sort of journey, and Ray Dalio is a good example of this, is you start off heavily critical. And when you start to look into it in more detail, you start to see actually it's, it's a fascinating subject and also quite compelling in, in terms of its concepts. And, and for me, it got to the point where I thought, actually, you know, this is, this is quite a good career move. It's, it's, it's very rare in your career, or in most people's careers, actually, that you see the birth of a new asset class. And, mm -hmm. and I believe that is what we're seeing now with Bitcoin and other crypto assets. And I wanted to be part of that. Yeah. I mean, was, was there any side of you that was kind of bored of more conventional asset management or or was it purely that you just saw this you know like you're saying that you saw this new thing um <laughs> yeah i mean there is there was probably an element of in finance particularly in large banks there's increasing bureaucracy post-financial crisis mm. and increasing limitations about what you can and can't do uh i'm not saying i've switched to the wild west of bitcoin <laughs> at all but yeah, um yeah. and i think you know it's it's more of a startup mentality, I think. In, in the, well, CoinShares definitely isn't that anymore, but mm -hmm. um, it feels a bit like that sometimes. And I quite I like that. I find that more interesting. I don't want to be part of a large financial institution. I want to be mm. part of something that's new and exciting. 
Well, it's interesting because the two worlds are in some respects kind of coming together now, aren't they? I mean, we've seen institutional interest in crypto, uh, certainly in the last year. And at the start of the year, we learned about Ruffer holding 550 million pounds of Bitcoin. So so what's what's driven that, James? Um, you know, what what's made institutional investors change their opinion on crypto? It's amazing, isn't it, how times have changed if if you were that statement you made just now if you'd made that last year this time last year mm. i think you would have been uh, a lot of people would have expressed uh, that a lot of ridicule i think and and but you know i think earlier on post covid people started to change their mind about it it was certainly tested then as it was a crisis moment and and it actually just arose above it did uh, suffer from a liquidity, bit of a liquidity issue, not too much actually, um, and dipped in terms of price during the, COVID, the start of the COVID crisis, but then recovered much quicker than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in increasing cashless society, um, people have started to look at it. And I, I, from an institutional perspective, I, it's really changed. I, I started going to meetings four years ago where most people had their arms crossed and uh, saying no to me, it's this is absolutely ridiculous and it's going to go to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, to about uh, nine months ago, where people are saying this is interesting, it's a speculative thing. I, I think I might buy it. And then more recently, in the last six months, I think people have really started saying this is really interesting. Bitcoin's been around twelve years now. Now, mm-hmm. uh, help me learn, help me understand it. And I think as people have started to understand it more, um, as I said earlier. Then you realizing then you realize it's quite a compelling concept and i think actually you know bitcoin you can go down a very deep rabbit rabbit hole looking mm-hmm. at all the technicalities behind it but on the bottom line of it is actually a very simple um it's a very simple thing it's something it's a hard asset of finite supply with a very predictable supply curve um 99 will be mined by 2030 mm-hmm. um and uh, and I think then once you know that that supply is, is, is very much fixed and it's a large immutable network, distributed network, um, once you understand that and the robustness of it, um, it becomes a potentially quite compelling investment, particularly when uh, there's so much quantitative easing. We've seen such an escalate, escalation of quantitative easing. People are looking to diversify their hard asset buckets. And there aren't many hard assets these days. There's gold perhaps the Swiss franc, certainly not the Japanese yen anymore. Um, so Bitcoin is a way of diversifying that hard asset bucket. And I think that's why institutional investors are starting to find it appealing now. Yeah, I find it interesting you mention understanding because I, I think when you look at crypto for the first time and even we look at blockchain, it, it's quite hard to understand what's going on. I'll, I'll openly confess that much of this is is hard to follow for me. Um, do you think it is simply the case that the institutional investors weren't, you know, interested as much before simply because they didn't understand? Is that essentially it? Um, I think there's a certain amount of ridicule. I, you know, uh, not even nine months ago, I think the generic question was, uh, answer was, I've got uh, to a professional investors, I've got it in my PA, but I've certainly not got it in my fund. I think there's a certain amount of in, of almost embarrassment about even considering the idea of adding Bitcoin to your portfolio. But um, uh, now uh, we've seen some quite high profile investors buy it. I think that just gives it, rightly or wrongly, mm-hmm. um, some, certainly doesn't affect the fundamentals of it, but rightly or wrongly, it gives it some legitimization. Yeah. And you know, if you've got high profile individuals saying it's good, I think a lot of people say, oh, well, actually, if this person 
um, if Bridgewater say um, it's an interesting pro prospect and Bitcoin's identity as a store of value is really evolving. And I think that, that sort of perks people's interests. Um, yeah. And what does institutional investors getting involved mean? Does it, does it fund, you know, fundamentally just drive the value of, of the coin up? I don't think it does. Um, I think it's more about, it's a bit like when you create an ETF on anything. In my view, is it's unlikely unless it's greater than the total market cap of the underlying, it's unlikely to really push up the price. It's more likely to just improve liquidity. Mm -hmm. um, at the moment, Bitcoin uh, funds only represent around 4% of total Bitcoin turnover. So they're quite small. Um, so I'm not, I don't necessarily think it pushes the price up, but I mean, you could argue in some ways that it is at the moment, because if you look at the total amount produced, not much, only about 2% every year is now produced of total Bitcoin in existence. So mm -hmm. there's quite short supply and that's not going to change. So you could argue that those marginal buyers are really pushing up the price, but is it institutional investors? Well, because they only represent 4% of total trading turnover, it's, there's a lot more to it than just institutional investors. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, and to take this in a different direction, because, you know, being in the media, I like to maybe make things, I don't know, focus on the areas that are more shady, right? So one thing with cryptocurrency um, that's often come up is, you know, crime, basically. I mean, I was, I kind of did some, some searching from this and, and found an article from the start of 2020 uh, from the New York Times. Um, you know, they, they ran a, a headline saying, Bitcoin has lost steam, but criminals still love it. And I think there's always been this perception that, you know, cryptocurrency is, you know, an effective way to do fairly nefarious things. Yeah, is that the case? Um, and do you think we need to think twice uh, about how we how we look at crypto in this respect? Yeah. My heart sinks when I hear headlines like this, particularly from some very high profile individuals. Um, the reality is quite different. Yes, that was the case in 2013 to 2015, it was commonly used. Um, but when you start to understand the fundamentals of Bitcoin, you realize actually it's not a particularly clever place to engage in criminal activity. There, it is a public ledger, which anyone can look at. So if you have your, um, your the, the public wallet key, that's your bank account key identified, they can track exactly who you've spent money with and 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 the, the amounts too. So the FBI have had great success. In fact, at one point, they were the third largest Bitcoin holder in the world because of the, the amount of money they've confiscated. Wow. And the Bulgarian government, funny enough, was a very large holder too. So it's actually, there are interesting companies out there such as Elliptic as well, which um, do forensic um, analysis on Bitcoin transactions and are actively involved with um, uh, the British government and other governments to track criminals. So mm -hmm. these days, it's not a particularly good day, uh, a good place to um, engage in criminal activity. And as a consequence, we're seeing a big decline in, in criminal use of it. And in fact, and whilst we see a couple of hacking events that people say using Bitcoin, mm -hmm. um, uh, high profile ones, the reality is I think they're switching to other coins where there's greater anonymity. Yeah, that's a good point. I was about to ask that actually, you know, if it, if you do think we'll see, in, you know, rising usage of other coins, um, you know, how, how does that work anyway? Do people, how, you know, what's the difference between one that's people know about and can investigate and one that people can't? 
Um, well, I suppose there are some where um, your it's your IP, your associated IP address is not linked, such as Do Dogecoin. Okay. Um, now, I'd say you know, is that well, the great thing about it is you can look at the market cap of Dogecoin, and it's it's one hundredth the size of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, so, if they are switching to that that coin and potentially any others, um, it, I don't think it's as great a portion of total of total crime that they thought it was essentially. Yeah, and just to clarify, James, I asked that last question for for a friend, not for myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, um, anyway. Uh, a different uh, conversation. This is something that we discussed previously, actually, not not publicly, but in a, in a call uh, between ourselves. Uh, and this was something that I wanted to write about for Tech Travels, actually. It, it just kind of fell by the wayside. I've got 800 words to cover these articles, um, as most people who read it will know. Uh, and at least 200 of those every week are, are me making bad jokes and puns and so on. So it makes it tricky. But one thing you brought up was the use of, of Bitcoin in politically and economically unstable nations like Venezuela, Argentina, Cameroon, you know, Iran, Turkey. Um, can you elaborate on that situation? Because I find that yeah. really fascinating. So my main view is that you can criticize Bitcoin to some extent for saying it has no utility. But actually, I think its utility is as a store of value, a bit like gold. Um, and uh, in that respect, you can see evidence of that. So I spent some time looking, trying to understand its utility as a store of value. And then I started to notice in certain countries, such as Colombia, um, Brazil, uh, Turkey, um, if you look at um, the growth in volumes of Bitcoin in those countries, they're thousands of percent. Venezuela is another good example, too. And, um, and I was astonished by this. So... I started to think, well, maybe this is a, um, there's uh, Cambodia is another good example of where we've seen thousands of percent rise in thousands of percent percentages rise in, in Bitcoin volumes. And that is a country where um, there's quite a high number of refugees leave, leaving the country. Now, if you are leaving a country, um, uh, I suppose historically you would leave your bank account behind. So some people used to walk, walk across the border with wads of cash course you're very vulnerable to theft in that instance mm -hmm. and actually it's much easier to stick your bitcoin on convert it to bitcoin which any individual can do if they have the internet that's what's nice about this is democratized uh, wealth to some extent um, you don't need a nice uh, global bank account with hsbc um, you you just need a, a bitcoin wallet from the internet and you can walk across with your bitcoin on a usb stick Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that may be why it's been used for refugee, uh, by refugees, but also if you look in countries such as Turkey, where there's massive, and, and Venezuela, where there's massive devaluation of their currencies, um, Bitcoin actually acts as an attractive anchor for their assets in those mm -hmm. countries. So I think that's why. And in fact, there's quite, there seems to be quite a close correlation between the World Bank Political Stability Index and Bitcoin volume. So the lower the stability... Yeah. Uh, the higher the volumes tend to be. Yeah. Do you expect any backlash from governments? Because, I mean, you might assume that if people are using more cryptocurrency, that the, you know, that's bad news for the, the nationally used currency. Um, do, you, do you expect people to kind of crack down on it? Um, yes, but you're limited. It depends. If, if the, uh, 
if you're buying Bitcoin through a financially regulated product, then the government's control can control that. But we would class Bitcoin as as a non-sovereign store of value because you can't prevent people um, from buying Bitcoin. In China, they've tried it. And yes, volumes from China have declined substantially. They used to be around 16% of volumes. They're now around 4 or 5% after the ban, but they're still 4 or 5% of Bitcoin volumes. So people mm -hmm. are still trading it. And I think it's a very hard thing to prevent. Unless you switch the internet off, you can't prevent it. Um, and so I think it's actually quite a challenge and why we're seeing a big growth in CBDCs, that's central bank digital currencies now, because they know if governments know if they don't start competing with Bitcoin now, it might be too late. Hmm. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah. Well, now I need to take it to a silly place, James. Um, <laughs> it's tech travel, so I have to do this. And, and I want to talk about Dogecoin, which you've already mentioned. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, it's a, it's a kind of meme-based cryptocurrency. Uh, the coin itself has a picture of the the Shiba Inu dog from well from an internet meme. Uh, the value of Dogecoin has gone gone absolutely mad this week. I'm going to have to disclose I'm one of the idiots who bought some, um, which doesn't give me much pride, but I, I found it funny at the time. Um, we're speaking on the first of February, right? And this currency was valued at less than one cent per coin, I think, at the start of the year. It briefly held a value of about eight point two cents. Which is which is mad. So I've got a few questions, James. Do you have any idea how how that kind of happens and what's going on? Uh, and secondly, how long until I'm wildly rich? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't forget, this is uh, an asset class in its infancy, and there are wildly varied uh, levels of understanding of various uh, digital assets, and and I think. For that reason, and also, I mean, you can kind of look at some crypto assets like small cap companies. They, you know, when you buy a small cap company, you're not buying it because it's delivering huge earnings. You're buying it because you have faith in the concept and you have faith in the management to deliver that concept. And and as a consequence, those small cap companies can be quite volatile in, in, in price. And I think that's the same. Uh, and you get a lot of people speculating. They like the concept and they speculate. Um, there's no fundamentals, there's no value to, uh, to derive it from yet, there's no earnings. But, and I think some, many digital assets uh, are, are like that. They're great concepts, whether or not they'll become, they'll, they'll become viable uh, solutions in the future it is, is unclear. So you get huge speculation. So you do get these wildly varied prices. I mean, you only have to look at Dogecoin, which is, I think is roughly number 10 in the, mm -hmm. uh, in the cryptocurrency top 10. Um, but it's 100 times smaller than Bitcoin in terms of size. If you compare that to, say, the S&P 500, which is uh, that that gap is much tighter. The, the top 10 are all significantly, seriously large companies. Um, but it's not the space. And I think what this rep, uh, represents is um, a very, um, how, how would I put it, small, it's, it's, there's a very, there's a very, still a very limited understanding of coins out, outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, and if you look at prices generally, they tend to all move together with Bitcoin. And I think that represents, as the market evolves and develops, I think you'll start to see much greater understanding and much greater price divergence as a consequence. Yeah. At the moment, there's this mixture of um, lack of understanding of fundamentals and wild speculation in the smaller hmm. coins. I, you know, and I think you yeah. do have to be careful um, uh, when you buy. I mean, my, my advice would be 
um, if you like the concept of a coin and you think it's robust enough in terms of the way they're delivering that concept, then that's you know as good a rationale quite often to buy some company else equity, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there much variation in what people are doing with the coins? Because if you look at the the lists that are available on any of the kind of crypto brokers, there's there's all sorts, and some are valued at absolutely nothing, and some are valued a couple of dollars. Um, what what are they doing differently? I mean, if they're effectively kind of stores of values and, and currencies, just just how clever with it can you be? Um, well, yeah, I think that you know there are fifteen thousand coins out there, all with really. Uh, wild wildly different concepts and i but i think it's not fair to call them currencies really i think a lot of them are just projects people issue a white paper and um and th- there you have um a, a sort of a concept and they try to raise some cash it's questionable about whether some of them are it's worth creating some sort of a cryptocurrency or, or icoing them as they would say um but I think they are, some of them are wildly different um, in, in concepts. I mean, just have to take the top two. Bitcoin uh, was, um, I suppose, seen by Satoshi Nakamoto, the guy who wrote the white, the person who wrote the, wrote the white paper, as an um, e, e-cash, a digital payment system. And I think what Bitcoin is now evolving into is potentially that, but it's more of a store of value, certainly at the moment. Yeah. because of its limited supply but if you look at something like ethereum it's quite different it's they would say that ethereum is t- trying to decentralize everything um so ethereum is a bit like amazon web services uh but with a currency rolled into it so they even the top two are very different to each other hmm. and how much does the um y- utility of the currency translate into its value so you know digital asset rather than currency i should learn my lesson james but um, <laughs> yeah. you know how, how much does the utility actually feed into the value um i think you know when you look at equities the utility of that company is, is really important um uh, when you look at uh at crypto assets i think sometimes the utility is incredibly important but sometimes it isn't. I mean, if you just say, think of Bitcoin, it is similar to it's a digital version of gold. Um, if you look at the utility of gold, its rev sense probably only around, you know, 10% of use is used for industrial use. The rest is a kind of store of value. A lot of it's used for jewelry. A lot of it's held by central banks. It's still either way, a store of value of sorts. So mm. it's really hard, I think, to apply utility, a utility approach to gold and say that, that's what its value is, because clearly it's worth a lot more than that. And I think Bitcoin definitely fits in that category. You know, when I was, um, uh, when we had a gold fund uh, ETF securities, Europe's largest gold ETF, or ETC, um, it polarized opinion. And I think Bitcoin will do exactly the same. It'll all, uh, always polarize opinion on for that very matter. Does it have that utility? Mm. And some people can't see that. I think utility for Bitcoin is, um, in perhaps its use of a store of value. Um, but in a way, it's a bit like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. Um, what some person finds valuable, so someone else really might not at all. Um, mm-hmm. But I do, I, I think Ethereum, for instance, um, where it's having great success right now is in decentralized finance, smart contracts. So there's no middleman between the, the person writing the contract and the person receiving it. Um, and, and then there's, that, that's, that's used for decentralized finance. And then you have um, 
uh, I do think identity. Um, so there's a lot of identity theft online at the moment. And actually having a place where you control your identity um, completely um, is a really interesting concept. And, and Ethereum could really deliver that. Um, so, but that said, I mean, I still think many coins are unproven in terms of their utility yet. And there's still quite a lot of expectation. I, the only two places really is it's probably Ethereum and Bitcoin where there's genuinely some form of utility. And as a consequence, I think their valuations are mm. much higher than anything out there. Yeah, and quickly, this, this might not be a question that's easy to answer quickly, but but why is the difference in evaluation evaluation yeah, between Ethereum and Bitcoin so big? Yeah. Don't forget, Ethereum's only been around since 2015, I think. So uh, well, Bitcoin's been around for 12 years. Um, part of what gives Bitcoin its value is the size of the network. Let's say I said to you, there are only two computers mining Bitcoin at the moment. That means I only have to influence those two people running those computers to change the Bitcoin protocol. So it's hardly immutable. Um, if there are over a million computers mining Bitcoin as there are now, it's very hard to convince all those million people or computers to change the protocol. And that's, so what I'm trying to allude to is the size of the network, the immutableness of it is um, what gives it its value. Now it's hard earned value. That, that network is growing still very rapidly today, um, almost exponentially actually. Um, and that is hard earned over 12 years. You can't just, I could create James coin uh, today and run it on my computer, but it might take me many years to get it, convince lots of other people to run it on their computers and therefore give it some value, some immutability. Um, and I think it's partly the length of time it's been around. That's why Bitcoin's worth so much relative to other kinds. Ethereum is not worth, it's only worth uh, sort of one-tenth of Bitcoin. Um, and I think part of the reason is the, the, the time which it's been around. And also it's had a bit of a tumultuous period in terms of its concepts and how it's structured. Um, I don't want to go into any more detail. No, that. no, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'd understand much more detail. So we're good. We're good. Yeah. Um, James, I have one last question for you, um, and it very much relates to, you know, the audience we have at CityWire for our UK publications. It's primarily IFAs, wealth managers. We have a handful of folk from private offices and private banks. Um, you know, it's a broad range of investors with very different approaches to investing in very different clients, but. Um, if you can bundle them together, I guess, to some extent, do, do you think that all of these people, generally speaking, um, will in the foreseeable future be trading crypto for their clients? I think what we're finding, uh, if you were a fly on the wall to various client meetings, it, the first set of meetings tend to be uh, associated around, look, we need to learn about Bitcoin. We're getting a huge amount of pressure from our clients who want to trade in it or want to add it to our portfolios. And so I think whilst, you know, some of the meetings we had, say, nine months ago, the, the response was no way, I've got no clients interested now. I think the response more recently has been, I've got a lot of clients interested, we really need to understand this and look at ways of getting Bitcoin on our investment platforms so clients can buy it. So it's very much, I think, Bitcoin is very much being led by uh, their clients in terms of wealth managers and fund platforms, etc. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. I guess you've got to be confident in an investment before you recommend it to a client, of course. So, is it a case that people will have to learn 
about crypto in the same way the asset managers, institutional investors have, have kind of had to, um, you know, or, or is there a way we can simplify this? Um, yeah, there is. I mean, I think we see our role at CoinShares as very much educational as well as um, uh, delivering a fund solution too. Um, we know that it's it can be quite a steep learning curve and quite a daunting one. Uh, when you start to sort of go alone and read about Bitcoin, you realize it's complicated. It's very hard to figure out what's important and what's not. So we're, I think for us, we're spending a lot of time just distilling what is important for clients. So we put together sort of presentations which were very much tailored to the way they might think. So for me, having come from a traditional investment background, my slides are, you know, my presentations are very much um, tailored in that way that um, investment managers will understand. And also there's so much of the uh, complexity much big, uh, around Bitcoin, which you really don't need to know as an investor. Mm. And we help people and give them confidence that on certain levels enough to, mm. to, to be comfortable about making an investment. Gotcha. Well, look, thank you, James. I'm afraid that's all I've got time for, but thank you. You've been a great guest. It's been great hearing your views on, on crypto. And, and thanks also for not mocking me when I mentioned that I bought some Dogecoin. That was kind <laughs> of you. Uh, you know, very generous. Um, look, and thanks to everyone else for listening. Uh, do join me for episode two, where I'll be joined by Heather Hopkins from Next Wealth. Uh, we're going to have a look at what 2021 holds for advice and wealth tech. <laughs>